welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Our scripture reading is this morning in Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 29. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, I just wanted to thank you guys for your prayers for the one-year memorial for Darnell yesterday. We had a memorial down at the sheriff's department. Uh, yesterday for him is the one-year anniversary, and uh, it was amazing. If you guys didn't watch it on the live stream or weren't there, Vanessa shared, and she did an amazing job honoring Darnell and honoring the Lord, and then his whole family and her family shared, and it was like, I was looking at these people that, that came. If they weren't Christians, they'd be like, did I go to church? You know, like, you know, what's going on here? Because it was just an amazing gathering of honoring the Lord and remembering Darnell. So your prayers were hugely effective. It was just incredible. It was incredible. I was thinking about his family and her family and just the legacy of faith that's in that family, that you could get the family together and they could do this coordinated, you know, sharing about Christ and the gospel in such a powerful way. I just don't know of another family like that. It was incredibly powerful. So anyway, thank you guys. The book of Hebrews was written by a pastor who was concerned, and he was concerned 
uh, about a first century group of Jewish believers. He was concerned they might fall away. They were receiving persecution. They were receiving it actually from two sides. They were receiving some persecution from the Judaism that they had left, and they were also receiving persecution from the Roman Empire that they lived in. And the writer of Hebrews was concerned, and the whole letter is his concern, that, they, that these hardships might cause them to, to drift away from Christ. And uh, earlier in the letter, like in chapter 3 and 4, he talks about how the Christian life is like the journey of the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. You know, that we as Christians have been freed from the evil empire of Satan, and just like Pharaoh in, in Egypt, and now we're on our way to the true promised land, and we're obviously not there yet. We're wandering in the wilderness, and he uses that imagery throughout the, the letter. And so our whole Christian life is like that, isn't it? It's a walking in the wilderness on our way to the true promised land. And as some of you guys have found, and some of you guys will find later, it's exhausting. And he says in verse 12, he gives this beautiful encouragement. He says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Kind of get that imagery of like walking on a path, walking on a trail. He encourages them not to drift from the path of following Jesus. And really, they had two ways they could do that. You think about them as, as these Jewish Christians, there's two ways they could drift from Christ. One would be to just assimilate into the sinful culture around them, the sinful Roman culture around them. They could do that, and they could say, you know what, I'll, I still believe in Jesus, but I'm just going to live the way the rest of the culture does. That's one way for them to drift. Another way for them to drift would be to go back to their old life in Judaism. And uh, they might think, well, it's the same God, isn't it? It's just without Jesus. This whole letter is to tell them that's not the case. And, and really, guys, either direction they were to drift from the path, if they went back to Judaism or they just assimilated fully into the sinful culture of Rome, either way their persecution is going to end, right? The, the pain is to stay on the path. And we guys have similar temptations. We have a temptation all the time to just assimilate into our sinful culture. But we also have temptations, especially as Christians, to, to devolve into self-righteous religion. So there's that kind of assimilating the sinful culture, or we could stay in church and we could be self-righteous and religious. And so he wants to warn us not to drift. And he uses really powerful images. And this is what Josh was talking about with this being a good one for you kids to draw, because he uses these big, powerful images. There's Esau and his bowl of soup. And then a little bit later, there's two great mountains. And at the end, there's an earthquake that, that shakes the whole world. And these powerful images are to show us uh, not to drift. And so kids, if you got the sheet, you could kind of be drawing it as we go. But to keep them from drifting from this into the sinful culture that they were a part of, he says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Notice, guys, in this pursuit of holiness, in this culture that wants to draw us away, it's something that we need to do together. And this is something that's profoundly needed to be heard in our particular environment amongst Christians. So many Christians right now have decided they're going to go it alone, right? That's actually kind of the default mode, it seems. They're going to go it alone. They're not going to be a part of a church. But look at, listen to the communal language here in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That we're all to see to it that none of these people fail to obtain the grace of God. If you're not a part of a local community of a church, who are these people? Everyone out there? No, not everyone out there. We're called to look out for each other, guys. And that's probably why he combines here 
the striving for peace with everyone with the striving for holiness. He says, strive for peace with everyone because our unity together is essential for our survival as Christians, that we actually need each other. And that's why you hear so much in the New Testament about unity in the body and everything is because we need each other, guys. You will not make this long trek through the wilderness. You will not make it alone. It's crazy to try to make it alone, right? You need a crew. You need a church to walk with. You need a tribe. That's what the church is. It's, the, it's a body of people that you're doing the hike with, you know, that you're on the journey with, that you're going through the wilderness together with. There are people for you to look out for and a people to look out for you so that no one gets left behind, right? Ellie and I were watching this, my daughter Ellie, we were watching the, the new Lord of the Rings thing on Netflix. You know, it's like a series. And to our great dismay, the hobbits in that, if people slow down, they leave them. And like, Ellie and I were horrified. Have you guys watched this show? You haven't watched it at all? No one? Has anyone watched this? Were you guys horrified to find out the hobbits leave each other behind? I was just like, this is terrible, right? But we don't do that. Hebrews 3 says this, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we strive for holiness together. And we strive for holiness by abiding in Christ. It's a really cool thing in this passage is that Jesus' life in us is one of the gifts of the gospel. That's why in verse 14 he says this, that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You might look at that and you might think, oh, well, is that saying we earn our salvation or something like that? That's not what that's about. There is a holiness in the life of every believer, but that's a holiness that's coming out of us from Christ. It's Christ dwelling in us that gives us this holiness, and it's a gift of the gospel. The moment you came to trust in Christ for salvation, you were united by faith to Christ so that you're in Christ, but then also Christ is in you, right? From the moment you got saved, you got united to Christ, Christ, you were in Christ and Christ was in you. That's an inseparable bond. And you're in Christ in the sense that you're clothed with his righteousness as if with a robe. That God doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your weaknesses. He doesn't see any of those things in a way that would condemn you. Because you're in Christ. You're clothed with his righteousness like a robe. That's what saves you. But then there's another gift of the gospel, which is not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. And his life comes out through you. That's why he says in verse 14 that every Christian has a holiness that emanates from them. That's Christ living in them. And that holiness isn't what saves us. Christ's righteousness over us saves us. But it's another gift of the gospel that he lives in us and he comes out through us. At the memorial yesterday, I used this example of a lantern, that, that all Christians are like a lantern and Christ lives within us. And any holiness that you see in our lives, any righteousness that you see coming out of us is Christ the candle emanating from within us. And every Christian that is united to Christ, and Christ's life will emanate from them to some degree. And I think we get in a real trap when we start going like, hey, do I have enough of it to feel like I'm saved? That's a whole trap, right? Because how much would be enough? Christ is going to emanate out of every Christian to some degree. And what happens is, just like that lantern on the glass, our sin can smudge it so that you don't see Christ within us as much as we'd like. And we never radiate Christ as much as we want to, but he's always in there. If you're a believer, Christ is in you, and he's burning inside. And we strive for holiness, guys, by, by abiding in him. 
This holiness isn't something that we try to stir up within ourselves. We experience the holiness in our lives as we abide in Christ more and more, as we rely less and less on our own strength, and we rely more and more on our union with Christ. Jesus said this, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what happens is the moment you got saved, you're like a dead branch that got grafted into the living vine of Christ. And then what happens is, is that Christ's life starts flowing in through you. You're just this like dead, gnarled branch. It starts flowing in you, pushing out the deadness and causing all sorts of green leaves and fresh fruit to grow. It's the life of Christ in you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it amazing that he doesn't just save us, but he also lives within us to transform us? It's a gift of the gospel. And so striving for holiness is about abiding in him like branches in a vine. And if you guys are like, okay, that's a little like hard to even imagine how you do that, I would just say that's what discipleship's about. It's about learning to abide in Christ. And if you don't really know what that is, grab somebody here and ask them to help you. That would be discipleship. We help one another to to abide in Christ. And if they don't know what it means either, both of you guys go and find another person Maybe you'll have a whole small group by the time you find somebody. But there are people here, I would love to direct you to people here. You say, I I heard what you said about Christ living in me, and I want more and more to have his life flowing through my life. How do I do that? And there's plenty of people here that would love to meet up with you and like talk that through. But it's a gift of the gospel. It's abiding in him like branches in a vine. Or to use another agricultural metaphor, which he has in here, it involves abiding in Christ, but also involves another thing, which is pulling up weeds of pride. And you see that in, um, in verse 15. Pride makes us think that we know better than the Lord. Pride makes us think that we can live the Christian life on our own. Pride makes us think that we can seek out some sort of thing besides the Lord that will actually make us happier and, and, and more peaceful. But he calls that pride a root of bitterness. Look in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. I always thought this root of bitterness was like bitterness against each other, especially because in the context he talks about striving with peace. But this root of bitterness is actually, this is in Deuteronomy 29. I'll read it to you because it's not exactly what I thought. When it, it talks about a root of bitterness, it's in Deuteronomy 29. He says this, Beware lest there be in any of you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord today to go after other gods and to serve them. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the word that is sworn in the covenant, blesses himself in his heart and says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Isn't that interesting? So the root of bitterness is actually, it's a root of pride that says, I'm going to disobey God and I'll be fine anyways. And he says it's a, root, it's a root of bitterness because it's a root that grows up and bears poisonous, bitter fruit. Okay, so it could manifest as bitterness towards another believer. But the real thing is it's a root of pride. It's a root of pride growing in your heart that makes you think that you know better than the Lord. You know better what will give you peace and joy. And it's a root of bitterness because that root, as it grows, will produce poisonous and bitter fruit. And so this is a warning to us, this passage is a warning to us too, when we see the root of pride in our lives, to pull those roots out early and often, <laughs> to not let them grow, right? And, uh, and, and he gives a cautionary tale of what that pride looks like in verse 16, and the cautionary tale has to do with Esau. Take a look at verse 16. 
and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know afterwards that when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he had no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I love how the writer of Hebrews just weaves in all this Old Testament, you know, and it becomes so alive to us and so applicable to us. But you remember this, this is from Genesis, that there was Esau, he was the oldest, he had the birthright, he was going to get all the inheritance, he goes out hunting or whatever, running around, he comes back, he's super hungry, sneaky Jacob, his brother, makes him this bowl of lentil soup, and he's like, hey, you can have it if you give me your inheritance, your birthright. And uh, he's like, oh, I'm so hungry. What does it matter? I'll die. And so he sold his birthright for lentil soup. And you know, it's weird. We didn't plan this, but we had lentil soup on Thursday, which was so weird. Tasha made lentil soup. It wasn't something that I, have we had lentil soup before? Yeah. And so um, that's a pastor's wife right there, you know, like whip out the lentil soup. And so uh, Mason sold all of his birthright to Miles to have it. It was great. Anyway, so we had lentil soup, and it, it was good. I mean, it's good. If you're going to have the soup, I'd have the lentil, you know? But this is the crazy thing, guys. Esau sold his whole inheritance for it. Isn't that crazy? And you say, well, like, that's absurd. I don't even, I can't even believe that ever happened. It's crazy. Guys, people do it every day. They do it every day. The temptations of this world become so overwhelming that people choose their sin over Christ every day, trading, you know, everlasting happiness in Christ for short-acting pleasures. It's crazy, right? You look at Esau and you go, he's nuts. Like, anyone who does that's crazier. And it reminds you, doesn't it, of that famous quote from The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, where he said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the reward promised in the gospel... It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot understand what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Amen? It's wild, right? And can you just imagine that choice on the final judgment, guys? Regret is far too small a word at the final judgment when you realize that you've traded infinite pleasures, infinite joy for just some short-acting worldly happiness. And you get a hint of it in verse 17. He says, For you know that afterwards, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is a picture of the final judgment. So to warn us from drifting into the sinful practices of our culture, he says, remember Esau's empty bowl of soup. Like that's the reminder. But there's another way they could drift, right? The other way they could drift is to go back into their life of Judaism. And so to do that, he's got another image. So we have the empty bowl of soup. That's to like return to the sin of the culture. But to return to Judaism, he says, think about two mountains, and the two mountains he wants you to think about are Mount Sinai, which represents the Old Covenant and the law. And then there's Mount Zion, which represents the New Covenant and the gospel. And these two mountains that you're going to see in just a second represent two ways of approaching God. So you've got Mount Sinai. This is to approach God based on your own righteousness. 
Okay? You want to approach God based on your own righteousness? You go to Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is what it's to approach God by grace through Christ. So Mount Sinai, to approach by my own righteousness. Mount Zion, to approach by grace through Christ. Check out Mount Sinai, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You guys remember Mount Sinai? So the Israelites, they're freed from Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness to the promised land. But real early on in their journey, they stop at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to get the law. He's using Mount Sinai here as a picture of the whole Old Covenant system. right? The whole Old Covenant law. It's an illustration of what you can expect if you try to approach God based on your own law-keeping, okay, you can expect Mount Sinai, right? It's an illustration of what you can expect if you assume your own goodness is enough to be accepted before God. If you say, hey, like a lot of people do, hey, I'm a pretty good person, I think God would agree, at least if he was being fair, right? Isn't that the way people think? Because if they, you know, hey, no, he wouldn't accept you based on your righteousness. Well, he's just not that fair, what we call that is that's self-righteousness. And it's called self-righteousness not because it makes you a jerk. It could. But it's not because it makes you a jerk. Self-righteousness is called that because you think that all the righteousness you need to be received by God is in you. All the righteousness you need is in you. That's self. It's in your self-righteousness, right? And what Mount Sinai is showing is what can we expect on the final day if we trust in our own righteousness. And and if that's what you are thinking about doing, take a look at Mount Sinai. So what was Mount Sinai? God's resting on top of the mountain, right? They've come out of slavery. They come to receive the law. And on the top of the mountain, it says there was a blazing fire. It was dark clouds, a violent wind, and extremely loud trumpet blasts that made the people tremble. So they come out of slavery. They come to this mountain. Moses is going to go up on the mountain to get the law. And on top of the mountain, it's like it's a volcano, right, with a lightning storm, wrapped in a hurricane, shaking all the ground around it like an earthquake. I mean, this is like the most uninviting scene, right? They're like, okay, maybe we go back, you know, like this is scary, right? And the voice of the Lord was so scary to them that the people begged for Moses to speak to them instead. Can you guys imagine that? Can you imagine you have a chance to hear the very voice of God and you're like, I don't want to hear it. It's too terrifying. Moses, you just speak to us. And they couldn't even touch the mountain, not even the base of it. Even their animals couldn't touch it or they would die. And even Moses, and this is God's messenger. This is the guy that's in with God. This is the one God sent, says that he trembled with fear, right? So you're thinking like, I'm a pretty good person, you know? Well, are you better than Moses? He's trembling with fear at the base of this mountain, and he's God's man. Mount Sinai is a picture of the final judgment for all who trust in their own goodness for acceptance with God. And the message is clear, right? It's access denied. It's terrifying judgment. For those who reject Christ and trust in their own righteousness, that's the God you can expect to meet on that day. And it's very clear. And that's what the whole Old Testament was meant to teach us, right? The whole Old Covenant was meant to teach us this. And for the original hearers, the message was loud and clear. These Jewish Christians, they're hearing this, message is loud and clear. The message is, we can't go back. 
You know, we can't go back to Judaism. You know, to go back to Judaism would be to go back to the Old Covenant. We can't do that. It would be to go to Mount Sinai. There's no way, right? That's, that's what he's doing with this. And what's so beautiful, though, guys, is for those of you who have seen that and realize that your righteousness is not enough and that that's the God you would face on the final day in your own righteousness and you've come to Christ and you've trusted in him, that's not the mountain you come to. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful that that's not the only mountain. If you are in Christ, that's not the mountain you've come to. You've come to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion, of course, is also a physical, historical place like Mount Sinai. Um, it's the place where the temple was built um, in Jerusalem. The Psalms speak about Zion all the time, about it being the special dwelling place of God, that, that God dwelled on Sinai temporarily, but then he dwells on Mount Zion permanently. It's his permanent, special dwelling place. But what's really interesting is you, as you read through the Old Testament, you realize that that Mount Zion, that physical place and that physical Jerusalem actually point to a heavenly dwelling. Because he says things like God will dwell there forever and things like that that make you realize, wait, that physical Mount Zion, that physical Jerusalem points to a heavenly Jerusalem. And so, once again, to, to trust in your own righteousness, you would come to Mount Sinai, which is terrifying judgment. But to come to Mount Zion, to approach God through Jesus, what do you get? Warm welcome. Warm welcome. Let me show you this. So in verse 22, look at the warm welcome you get at Mount Zion. You see, you're coming by grace through Christ, and you're approaching God. You come to Mount Zion. He says this, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Isn't this so inviting? Especially after you've seen Mount Sinai. This is so inviting. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's cool, right? Because in the Bible, angels freak people out. They scare people constantly. They're in terror. I mean, one even had a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden. The angels, they're holy. You don't get near them. They're scary, right? And what do we have here? It's an angel party. It's angels in festal gathering. It's an angel party. And then you pull up and they're like, hey, come on in. We've been waiting for you. Isn't that amazing? Festal gathering. It's so cool. It's so inviting. And then the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. If you're in Christ, when you arrive in heaven, you have the confidence of knowing your names on the guest list. You've been enrolled. And I'll tell you something to blow your mind. You've been on that list in heaven since before he made the world. But that's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> but that's amazing, right? Like, think of the confidence of that. You know, you come to heaven, and because you trusted in Christ, you know your name's on the list. You know? It's amazing. It's quite literally, your name's on a list in heaven. It's incredible. Never to be removed. Anyway, and to God, the judge of all. And you might think, well, how's that encouraging? God, the judge of all. This is very encouraging, guys, because this God who's the judge of all has already declared you righteous in Christ. That's justification, right? So when you hear that you've come to God, the judge of all, you're seeing him as God, the God who has judged you righteous in Christ, righteous because of Christ, righteous in Christ. Isn't that amazing? 
Because the gospel tells us that our judgment day has been moved from the future to the past. Our judgment day occurred on the cross because we trust in Christ. And now he has declared us righteous because of him. And so you come to God, the judge of all. And then you come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Isn't that cool? This speaks to those believers who have gone before us. So we come into this gathering, this festal gathering of angels with our name written, and we mill around and we meet, we have a reunion with the people that have gone before us, the believers who have gone before us, all of those who we love who, who are in Christ, we'll, we'll meet them again. And so you got the terrors of Mount Sinai, which our sins deserve, has been replaced here with the welcome of Mount Zion. Isn't that beautiful? To have those stark mountains, it's been replaced The terrors of Mount Sinai, which our sins deserve, have been replaced with the welcome of Mount Zion. And in verse 24, we find out why. Check it out. And to Jesus, is the other one you come to when you come to Mount Zion, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's he talking about there? You guys remember when uh, Cain killed Abel? God confronts him, and he says, your brother, Abel's blood cries out, cries out for judgment. Um, Abel's blood cried out for judgment against Cain. What he's saying here is that Jesus' blood cries out too, right? But not for our judgment, but for our forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? On the cross, guys, Jesus Christ endured the terrors of Mount Sinai to give us the welcome of Mount Zion. How good is this? Seriously? I don't know what else you guys want. Like, this is incredible, right? Yeah, which part? I don't know what to say. But, like, isn't this good? Are you kidding me? You're like, well, I've kind of been looking into some other religions. I would love to know which one. This is incredible news, guys, and it has the benefit of being true, right? This is the truth. It's so beautiful. Guys, don't miss this. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants to say. Don't miss this. Whatever you think you want, whatever you're thinking about right now, some sin that you think you want, you think is better than this, you're crazy. Like you've literally gone nuts, right? If there's something right now, and I don't know what it would be, it's like an illicit relationship or, you know, your unfaithfulness to your spouse or some hidden habit or something like that, and you're thinking like, I know the Lord wants me to repent of this, and like that root of bitterness, you're like, you know what? I bless myself that I will be fine even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. It's like, you're crazy. You're so crazy. Don't trade anything for this. Look at verse 25. So that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Guys, there's nothing in this world that is worth more than this future we have in Jesus. Guys, this whole world, I know it seems solid. I know it seems more real than the things you have in Christ. I feel that too, guys. I mean, I'm a regular person. I feel like the things of this world are more solid than the things we have in Christ, but they're not. They're not more solid. They're so shaky. They're so flimsy. And he says in this next part of this passage that this whole world's going to be shown for how shaky and flimsy it really is. You know, that thing you want, that person you want, whatever that is that you want that, that would be against Christ... It's shaky and flimsy. And that's the third image. So he's given us Esau in that bowl of soup. He's given us two mountains. Then he gives us an earthquake. Check this out. The, the shaking of Mount Sinai was a preview of the coming shaking of the whole world. Look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth 
But now he promises, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is a quote from Haggai. And just as God shook Sinai, he's saying he's going to shake the whole world. And that the only things that are going to remain are the things that cannot be shaken. As only those who have fled to Christ on Mount Zion will remain. This whole thing looks so solid, it's all coming down. The whole thing's coming down. That's what he's saying here. Things of this world, the temptations it offers, they look so much more real than what we have in Christ. It's an illusion. It's all so flimsy. It's all going to fall down. It's all going to disappear. Only what we have in Christ will remain. It's 100% true, guys. It's all going down. Don't cling to any of this stuff, right? And I bet you guys have already even seen that. You guys have already seen it. You see it in your trials. You see it when you go through some sort of hardship and you realize God shows you how flimsy the things you hoped in this world really were. You guys experience that? Go through some trial, go through some suffering, and you're like, man, that thing I hoped in was so weak to hold me. You know what that is? That's like a foreshock of the earthquake coming. You know, sometimes there'll be little tremors before the big one. That's a little shake to show you how flimsy this world really is. That's God's grace, guys. That's God's grace showing us that nothing in this world is better than Jesus. And I know you guys feel this. Like, nothing seems solid right now, does it? Like, we're in a time in the world when things seem so unstable. And guys, that's the Lord shaking away all our hope in lesser things. And it doesn't bother us because we've received a kingdom that can't be shaken. Amen? Take a look at verse 28. I'll just read it and we'll be done. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the just incredible dose of reality this text has given us this morning, that, that for a moment our minds have been made extremely clear that Christ and what we have in him is the only solid thing that will last. We thank you for giving us that clarity. And we just pray, Lord, that you would keep us in that clarity. That we would seek first the kingdom. Knowing that Christ and his kingdom are the only thing that will last. And we just thank you, Lord, that you've not left us um, to just cling to the debris of this world. But you have drawn us out made us your own, and caused us to hope in Jesus. And we thank you so much for that. And we pray, Lord, that we would be extremely clear about this in our lives and in our dealings with others. And as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, we just thank you that it is a picture of our gathering together again. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.